my grandfather was an amazing storyteller. His name was Clint. We called him Big Daddy. And even though he spoke mostly in kind of a low, almost monotone voice, his stories were so interesting and humorous. We could just sit and listen to him for hours. And my guess is all of us have somebody kind of like that in our family. Or maybe you're that person that people are always saying to you, hey, tell that one about the time you found the possum in your kitchen or whatever. We're suckers for a great story, aren't we? It's the reason we love to sit around and tell stories or listen to stories, even if we've heard them a hundred times before. It's why we love movies and TV shows and good books. It's as if stories kind of unlock some unique part of our humanness in a way that nothing else really can. It shouldn't really surprise us then that the greatest of all storytellers was Jesus. Now that may sound a little strange because I think most people, they don't think of Jesus that way. Most people, when they think of Jesus or imagine the ministry of Jesus, he's the kind of person that just stood up on a hillside with his hand like this. I don't know why so many pictures. I'm not sure what this actually is. Some sort of posture of teaching, I suppose. And he just gives a bunch of disembodied truth. He gives principles. He gives commands, things like that. And of course, he did those things too. But quite often, Jesus chose to speak, to teach, in the form of parables. In order to show us who God really is and what it means to live in God's kingdom, Jesus used short narratives to illustrate great truths. And so we thought it would be a great blessing to our church if we took several weeks this fall to walk through the parables of Jesus, specifically those we find in the Gospel of Luke. And so we're going to begin today in Luke chapter 7. We're going to follow this thing chronologically. It begins in Luke 7 today, but we're going to spend several weeks, chapter by chapter, investigating these parables of Christ. And a quick word before we look at this specific story today. When we use this word parable, what do we mean? The word parable literally means to cast something alongside something else, to throw two things side by side together. Uh, It's a fictional story that is meant to illustrate something very real and true about God as well as something true about us. Um, And even though Jesus' stories are fictional, these parables are not real-life examples, uh, they are deeply rooted in reality. They tell us, in some cases, they tell us more about reality than a a true story, an example would. It's why Jesus' parables are always very earthy. They, they, They involve people, and sometimes they involve agriculture, but they're very uh, uh, true to life and understandable in simple and basic ways. These are short and earthy stories that are meant to capture the heart and move us toward God. Now, we're going to talk more about the nature and the purpose of parables as we go week by week. 
but hopefully that little introduction will help us to get started, to understand the place of parable in the ministry of Christ. And so what we have today in Luke chapter 7, it's not Jesus standing on a hillside speaking to a crowd. We actually have a parable within a narrative. We have a story within a story. And, and what we see in Luke 7, it's really the heart of Jesus's ministry, and it's the heart of Christianity. Uh, this is a beautiful, life-changing story within a story here. Uh, and so walk with me through it together. Let's, let's walk through it together. It's, it's Luke chapter 7, verse 36, something Luke has just told us about Jesus, which has become evident in the course of his own ministry. Jesus is the friend of sinners. The friend of sinners. Not something that people would have associated with a man of God, a prophet of God. And yet that was the essence of his earthly ministry. So the friend of sinners is invited over to dinner at a Pharisee's house. That's the story. Luke 7, verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting Jesus to dine with him. And Jesus entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind Jesus at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and kept wiping them with the hair of her head, and kissing his feet, and anointing them with the perfume. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. This story begins with a fairly typical scenario. Jesus has been invited to a dinner party. This kind of thing happened often. If we read through the Gospels looking for it, we find Jesus dining, having meals all the time. It was extremely uh, um, common and necessary to the culture. And when I say necessary, I'll explain that in a moment. In this case, Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's house. This is a man named Simon, we come to find out. Simon the Pharisee. Now, we know the Pharisees were generally against Jesus. So often in the Gospels, they're painted as very uh, antagonistic toward Christ. We see them kind of, you know, trying to trap Jesus in his own words all the time. But there's no indication of that here. Uh, we don't know from this story, we don't know exactly what Simon's motives were in inviting Jesus over, but on the surface, at least, it seems to be a fairly normal dinner party, uh, a fairly common uh, uh, event uh, without necessarily any ulterior motive. But here's something we do know, and here's why I say that dinner time in the 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 ancient world of the Bible, dinner time was not just uh, good and important, but it was necessary socially. Y'all, formal dinners in this culture 
were very critical social events. It was very important that the right people be around your dinner table. Honorable people. Otherwise, you risked being labeled and shamed by your peers. So when you threw a dinner party, you invited the right kind of people, and they would come, and then they would owe you one back. It's called reciprocity, that, that whatever good you've done for them, now they have to invite you over for dinner and honor you in return to make things even. This was an extremely important uh, kind of social contract. This is how things operated in these days. And that's what makes this whole scene uh, so tremendously strange and shocking. As these very honorable people are reclined at the table having their meal, a woman enters in, uninvited. In fact, Luke tells us she is a sinner. So in an honor and shame culture, this is a woman on the shame side of the spectrum for sure. And when Luke calls her a sinner, he's being very gracious here. He's not being specific, but we can understand what is being communicated here. She wasn't just the run-of-the-mill kind of sinner like everybody's a sinner. This is a woman who made her living doing immoral things. And I'll leave it at that. But her very presence in the house is shameful to these upstanding dinner guests. She does not belong. And in fact, her very presence is probably making everybody lose their appetite. Then, if, that, if, if her presence wasn't enough, then look at what she does. This woman, she takes perfume and anoints Jesus' feet with it while she weeps over him. She's sobbing and kissing his feet and wiping up her tears with her own hair. So from the perspective of these Pharisees, the situation goes from embarrassing to shocking to appalling. This woman has already, she has a stained reputation, clearly, and now she lets her hair down and kisses this man's feet. Jesus is not her husband. Understand that in the culture of the time, to let your hair down, to kiss another man who was not part of your immediate family. I mean, this is this whole scene is front page scandal here. What kind of relationship does Jesus have with this woman? That she would act so shamelessly in public and that he would allow it. See, these are the kind of questions. This is the kind of gossip. Uh, that would come out of a, a scenario like this. And in fact, that's exactly what Simon is wondering to himself. Simon the host. You see it in verse 39. He's thinking, if Jesus is really a prophet, if he's really this great man of God, he would know who this woman is and what kind of woman she is. And he wouldn't dare let her touch him. No self-respecting religious man would ever allow such a thing to happen. Now, what Simon doesn't realize, of course, is what we said earlier, what Luke has already told us, that Jesus came to be the friend of sinners. And we see that develop in the story in verse 
40. Jesus answered him. Now, this is always so interesting to me. Simon didn't say anything out loud in verse 39. He was merely thinking something in his mind, and Jesus answered his thoughts, proving that he was a prophet and so much more. He answered his thoughts. Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. And here's the parable. It's very short. Jesus said, verse 41, a moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus said to him, you have judged correctly. I told you it was short, and it's really very simple. Jesus sets up a simple parable with an obvious lesson. Two people are in debt to a lender. One is up to his waist in debt, while the other is drowning in it. But the lender is gracious and cancels both debts. But in this case, which debtor will have the deeper gratitude for what's been done? Or in Jesus' words, who will love the moneylender more? And Simon gives the obvious answer and the correct answer. The one who is forgiven the most will love the most. Now, this is the case with most of Jesus' parables. The point Jesus is making, the ultimate point, is not immediately obvious to those who are listening. Simon may very well be thinking that Jesus is just giving a, a, a lesson on finance. But Jesus, thankfully, makes the connection, not just for Simon, but for everyone in the room, and also for us. You see in verse 44, Turning toward the woman, Jesus said to Simon, Do you see this woman? A quick note on this. Of course Simon sees her. That's what this whole story is about. Simon sees her, and he is appalled by what he sees. But when Jesus says, do you see this woman? Simon sees her, yes, but he doesn't see her like Jesus sees her. And that's the problem. Simon sees her reputation, her past, her social and religious status. And what Simon sees is someone who is far beneath him. Someone the world wouldn't miss if she were gone. But that is not what Jesus sees. That's never what Jesus sees. And so he says to Simon, I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. Now, what's this all about? Remember we talked about the high priority people like this placed 
on honor. It was an, a, a culture of honor. That was the most important thing about your social status. Were you an honorable person? Did you hang out with honorable people? Well, listen, for Simon to invite Jesus into his home for dinner, there was a very basic expectation for how the host would honor his dinner guests. In the same way that when someone comes over to our house, we offer our restroom to them to go wash their hands. We pour their tea for them. We clean up their dishes after the meal. We take care of those things because that is how you honor a guest in your home. Well, y'all, basic etiquette required that Simon offer to Jesus a, a basin of water to wash his dusty feet. That was common practice. That Simon would give a kiss on the cheek as a sign of greeting and respect. A drop of olive oil on the head as a sign of blessing. That was, that was basic etiquette in that time and place. But you, Simon, did none of these things for me, Jesus says. Instead, this woman, whom you hold in such low regard, she washed my feet with her tears. She kissed my feet and anointed me, not with common everyday olive oil, but with costly perfume. Simon, you withheld from me basic honor, but this sinner, she has abounded with love and honor toward me. She has gone above and beyond what you neglected to do at a very basic level. Now, at this point, Simon would have been embarrassed in the presence of the, his, his dinner guests where honor was such an important function of their status, he would have looked around and felt shame for the way he neglected the basic things. But he still would have been missing the point. Jesus is not talking here about social honor at all. That is not the point of the parable or of his rebuke. Look at verse 47. Here's where we understand exactly what Jesus is trying to communicate. He says, for this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with Jesus began to say to themselves, who is this man? who even forgives sins. And Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The phrasing here can potentially create some confusion. Um, so let's clear that up. When, when Jesus says, Her sins are forgiven, for she loved much, that might appear to us that somehow this woman is earning or contributing to her forgiveness in the story, all these things she's doing for Jesus at dinner, that she's, in a sense, building up forgiveness, building up God's favor through her loving actions. But that would be to misread the story. Remember how the parable goes. The lender 
graciously forgives the debtors. Not because of anything they did prior. Not because they deserved it or earned it. And he didn't forgive most of their debt with a little bit left over. He cancels all of it. And so what is Jesus saying about this woman? Her tears, her hair, her perfume, her kisses, all of this lavish behavior is being done in love and gratitude for what she has already received. I have canceled her debt. Her sins, though they are many, have been forgiven, therefore she is overwhelmed with love for Christ. This is why in verse 48, when Jesus says to her, your sins have been forgiven, I don't think this is new information to her. I don't think she came to this dinner hoping that she could earn her forgiveness by doing nice things for Jesus. What I think verse 48 is, is not information so much as it is affirmation. It is an affirmation of grace to this woman, specifically in the presence of all these high-minded people who look down on her. Jesus is affirming something that has been done for her uniquely and graciously by God. That all these uh, very... Uh, buttoned up and honorable people cannot understand because they're too busy looking their noses, looking down their noses at her. Uh, and it, it, this is also an affirmation of who Jesus is. Of who Jesus is. Look, you notice immediately when Jesus says this, your sins have been forgiven, the dinner guests are appalled. This might be the most shocking thing of all. They're thinking to themselves, who does this man think he is? Proclaiming forgiveness of sins? Every good Jewish person knew no one can forgive sins but God alone. And so what is Jesus saying about himself? Jesus is revealing himself as the debt canceller. He is the gracious Savior who sets the sinner free. And so I want you to think with me for a moment about what this parable reveals to us. It's clearly revealing something, a truth, about the kingdom of God, what it means to live as those uh, who love and trust and walk with God. But there's also a truth about us in this parable. That all of us, in one way or another, we kind of fall in line with these, these people here. Some of us are like the woman. We've piled up our sins high. We've left behind us a trail of shame and broken relationships, a bad reputation. Uh, we have flunked a great many tests in our day, and we know it, and perhaps others know it about us too. And y'all, if there are, I know a great many of us that if we just take an honest assessment of our lives, we are drowning in the debt of sin. And in this case, there's wonderful news. We see it on, this, uh, on the pages of Luke chapter 7. 
You know, the good news is there's nothing at all that you can do to work your way out of this debt. There's nothing that can erase or undo the sin in your life that has been done. What's done is done. Now, that doesn't seem like good news, I know, but here is where it all comes to a point. There is a Savior who has come into the world. His name is Jesus, and he cancels that debt on our behalf. Not in part, but in full. Not with a repayment plan. Not with an opportunity for a do-over. And if you'll do better the second time, maybe you can earn some credibility back. There is no repayment plan with God. There is only total forgiveness. That's the only kind of grace and forgiveness Jesus offers us. Never partial. Never with a caveat. Only total and free forgiveness, once and for all. Y'all, what happens when a lender cancels a debt? There is a loss that is still suffered. It's the lender who suffers the loss, isn't it? It's the lender who loses out on what he lent. The lender pays the penalty. Someone still suffers. It's the person who has the power and the authority, they take that suffering upon themselves when they cancel the debt. And y'all, that is the gospel message. Jesus, who created us, Jesus, to whom belongs all honor, glory, and praise, he's the king of the universe. He is the lender in this case, and he cancels our certificate of debt by taking the penalty upon himself by going to the cross and dying for you. To cancel the debt is not a neutral activity on his part. It requires that he bear the penalty that we deserved. The perfect son of God lays his life down for sinners like you and me. Isn't that amazing? And yet that's the point of the parable, that the moneylender graciously forgives the debt. Jesus was glad to lay down his life for you. And so understand, just like the woman in this story, it makes no difference at all how much debt you've built up. It makes no difference at all how much sin you've committed. As if somehow you've passed a threshold that you've just gone too far and God cannot forgive. No, when Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, he paid it all. Every single sin. The debt has been canceled, and we may be forgiven. If you are the woman, in a sense, in this parable, if you are the, the one who owes the 500 denarii, the one who is drowning in sin debt, then the gospel is outrageously good news for you today. You have never gone so far that God in his grace cannot bring you to himself. Jesus has paid it all. But you know, there's another person in this story and there's another person in the parable. It's the one who's forgiven little. Remember the one who owes 50 denarii? And the key to understanding this part is, is that we would look at the man named Simon. Clearly, Simon is 
the one Jesus is referencing in this parable, the one who owes little, in a sense, and is forgiven little. Y'all, Simon was most certainly a respectable man, a man of good repute reputation, a man who kept his nose clean. He certainly kept the right kind of company. Simon said his prayers. He read his Bible. He did just about every good religious thing that would have been expected of him, and perhaps even more. He may have even gone above and beyond, because this is what it meant to be a Pharisee. That's what he was. And so by comparison, if we're just pulling out the scales here, Simon had far fewer sins than this woman, at least what was obvious on the surface. But that wouldn't be the point of what Jesus is saying. He's not pulling out the scales here to measure who is the better of the two people. Because it's clear from both the parable and the story that Simon loved Jesus far less than she did. And Jesus tells us why. Because he had been forgiven less. And the, the point here is not that Simon had less sin to forgive, and therefore God didn't need to grant as much forgiveness. No, Simon and his dinner guests, they were of the opinion that they didn't require all that much forgiveness. They were pretty good already, which is why they so easily, so naturally looked down their noses at the sinner in their midst. They didn't love Jesus, nor did they honor Jesus, because they did not see their need for Jesus. They needed only a little forgiveness, just a little dusting off. These were people who trusted in their own righteousness. And this is, sadly, this is where a lot of us uh, tend to drift, me included. This is often where I find myself. This whole story is meant to serve as a diagnostic for us. If I find myself happily looking down on others who don't measure up, if I do good things because I know they will be noticed and honored and applauded when I do them, if I spend little to no time actually confessing my sins to God, or if I spend very little time in gratitude and praise for the forgiveness and the grace of God, Chances are I am turning my default setting on. I'm turning back to what I know, to what is natural. I'm trusting in my own sense of goodness and righteousness rather than trusting in the righteousness of Christ. And inevitably, my love for Jesus will grow cold. Y'all, it's entirely possible for us to call ourselves Christians and to mean it and yet to grow callous toward Jesus. Because our sense of need for him has become small. We see ourselves as those who need relatively little forgiveness. And in that case, we love little. 
we do not appreciate who Jesus is and what he's done because we trust in ourselves that we on our own are pretty good already. Sure, I need Jesus, but I don't need him as much as some other people need him. And in that case, we're just like Simon. And I say that to us as a warning, yes, but also as an invitation for us to come to the truth of the gospel message, the good news of Jesus. Y'all, here's the truth. Even though he didn't realize it, Simon needed God's grace just as much as the sinful woman did, every bit as much as she did. Those of us who are fairly buttoned up and clean, we are just as sinful, just as needy as those of us who are down in the ditch. And this is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus, that in Jesus Christ, all the sinner's debt is canceled. All of it. All who trust in Jesus, all who come to him, graciously receive forgiveness and are set free. No exceptions. Whether we consider that we're high up on the ladder or low down on the ladder, God sees no such distinctions. We are sinners in need of his grace, and it's a grace he gives abundantly and freely. And so if there is no limit on the grace of God for sinners, then there should be for us no limit on our gratitude, on our tears, our devotion. We ought to, in that sense, be much more like this woman than we are like Simon the Pharisee. We who know just how much we've been forgiven. We ought to love much in return. To know how gracious God is produces devotion without a boundary, without a limit. Because to the degree that I see what I was, what I am apart from Christ, and then I see the love that he showed on the cross. When I see those two things coming together, there is no rational response except lavish devotion. Extravagant love. Because we have heard the Savior's voice say to us, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. None of us want this woman's reputation. We can safely say that. But I do pray and sincerely hope for myself, for all of us, that we would take on this woman's heart. She knew who she was, and she understands what Christ has done. And therefore, her life is now poured out, quite literally poured out, in love and gratitude for him. Let's pray that God would make such a heart to dwell in us and that we would live in lavish love because we've been forgiven much. Father, what a, a gift this, this narrative is to us and the parable within the story. Father, thank you that in so few words, Jesus is able to communicate the heart of his ministry, the heart of who he is and what makes us 
a, a forgiven people. That the debt has been canceled. Graciously, we have been forgiven. Father, you chose to do that out of the free kindness and goodness of your own heart. That this is, this is the kind intention of your will, that you would bring us to Christ and forgive us everything. Father, would you today um, bring us to repentance, especially as we, fr- as we find in our hearts the attitude of Simon, the attitude which says, uh, I'm, I'm good on my own, or at least I can be good on my own, that I can be an honorable and buttoned up person. I can trust in my own righteousness to make me acceptable to God. And I just need a little dusting off from time to time. Lord, that is such an attractive way of thinking for us because we desperately want to think we're good enough. We, we want to be good enough. We want to be the ones who receive credit in the end for having done well and earned our way in. I know that's still in my heart. And so I pray for myself, I pray for Harvest Church, that where that is present in us, where we think so highly of ourselves that our need for you is diminished, that, Lord, you would show us the reality of sin, that you would show us the true greatness of our Savior and bring us to repentance bring our hearts, our minds to the cross. That we might see, Lord, just how sinful we are. But moreover, we see how gracious you are. And that where sin abounds, grace has abounded all the more. And so, Father, in that case, make us more like this woman. Make us more like her. That, that at great cost to herself, at cost to her own reputation, she gave no thought to it at all. She came and found the one who had forgiven her, and she lavished her love upon him. Tears of joy, perhaps tears of regret for her former life, maybe. But I see in this story tears of, of thankfulness over what she'd been given, knowing that she could not deserve it. Make us like her. That we would see the Christian life this way. That you have so abounded in grace to us that there's no, there's no other way to respond. We will not pat ourselves on the back. We will not tip our cap to you and move on. We will fall at your feet and pour out all our heart, all our love in response to who you are. We have been forgiven much, so let us love much in return. Father, let this this simple story, this very short parable, change our lives. Because we see in it 
what's been done for us. And Lord, make it make it for us uh, a change of heart today. That we, if, if our love for you has in any way grown cold or stale, if we have taken for granted, Lord, the, the goodness of what you've done for us, then bring us back to the warmth and the beauty of the heart of Jesus Christ and bring us to tears of joy in his presence. We pray it in his precious and awesome name. Amen.